following sermon was delivered at Antioch Presbyterian Church, a mission work of Calvary Presbytery of the Presbyterian Church in America located in Woodruff, South Carolina. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com or contact us at info at AntiochPCA.com. May the Lord bless you as you receive gracious instruction from His Word. Perhaps you had the occasion where you were... Uh working in the shop or out in the yard, and you hitched your thumb. And when you hit your thumb, you hurt yourself, you kind of lashed out to the person next to you. Now, I've done that, and I imagine that many of you here today have done that, that the physical pain is expressed in a way, untoward way, but against someone else. Now, we we'd also do that with emotional pain. When we are greatly afflicted and and grieving and perhaps greatly hurting. And what we find ourselves doing in the situation, again, is lashing out at someone who loves us, someone who cares for us. But in the bitterness of our pain and sorrow, we lash out at someone else. Now, right behind that, in fact, is often the temptation and probably too often the matter. We also lash out at God. No, not the way Job did, but uh, with murmuring and complaining. that We don't deserve this, and and we deserve better than this. And and why is God treating me like this? Or why is he allowing these people to, to treat me like this? Well, this is what Job does here in this first speech. In a way that's far beyond, I trust, anything that that you have done at this point in your life. But as he sat there for seven days, reflecting on what's happened to him, he burst open as if his belly has burst. Even though with the psalmist, he has has resolved to keep a bridle on his thoughts and a rein upon his mouth and, and to be dumb and not to speak. Suddenly, in his passion, he speaks. And in his speaking, Job uh, overshoots himself. He's over the top. He doesn't curse God. You remember that. That was, that was Satan's intent that Job would curse God, that he would deny God, he would turn away from God. And and all of those immense trials of of the loss of his property, his servants, the death of his children, the loss of his own health, the painful circumstances in which he now found himself, he never cursed God. But as he sits there for these seven days, his attention slowly turns from God to himself. He becomes obsessed with his own difficulty and problems. And that's what leads then to uh, this um, very ungracious way of responding to his problems. So the, the story here, the, the first speech in the series now of speeches is very instructive uh, for us as we look at these first 19 verses. We learn that a believer obsessed are overwhelmed with trials, may lose um, scope, uh, focus, perspective, and respond in a very appropriate way. That a believer obsessed with pain and trials may lose focus and, and perspective and respond very inappropriately to 
the ways of God. We'll look at two things, and that is the loss of focus and the loss of perspective. We see Job's loss of focus in uh, the first uh, 10 verses. And uh, the speech is introduced here by the writer in verse 1, that Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. Now, the expression, open his mouth, is merely a way of, of drawing our attention now to what is being said, and that this, from the point of view of the writer and the Holy Spirit, is very important. Now, you'll notice this is the last bit that's given to us by the writer of this book. For the next, until chapter 42... All the next chapters, he does not insert himself. All he is is a recorder, a transcriber. As he transcribes for us speech after speech, he comes back in at the end of the last chapter to wrap things up for us. But he introduces Job's speech by saying that after all of this, at the end of these seven days, Job cursed the day of his birth. This is where he loses focus. He curses the... He doesn't curse God, does he? But as he loses his focus on what's going on here, he curses the day of his birth. Now, he does so through three expressions. Now, you'll note as we read these that Job and his friends lived in a time of great wisdom. They were rhetors. They had the ability of a Homer or a Virgil. These men thought and expressed themselves in these highly rhetorical, poetical ways. So as we look at particularly this speech, it's not our intention to analyze every word, but to understand that what Job does here is simply heap one uh, figure upon another to make this one point. He's cursing the day of his birth. Now, he does so in three ways. That it might be obliterated from the calendar, that it might be bereft of joy and gladness, and it might be deprived of all glory. So first, he curses the day that it, in fact, might simply be removed from the calendar. Verse 3 through 6, let the day perish in which I was to be born. The night which said a boy is conceived, or perhaps a boy is born. May that day be darkness. Let not God above care for it, nor let light shine on it. Let darkness and black gloom claim it. Let a cloud settle on it. Let the blackness of the day terrify it. As for the night, that night, let darkness seize it. Let it not rejoice among the days of the year. Let it come into the number of the months. Notice how he speaks of a 24-hour day. He speaks in the first half of, uh, of day in terms of the daylight hours. And then in verse 6, he speaks of night, that second part of the day. And he wants all of that to simply be obliterated, to to be uh, removed. And he calls upon it in this cursing, uh, the awful calamity, the destruction, the incoherence of night and darkness. Perhaps as he says... Uh, uses this language of night. Um, May the day be darkness. Uh, Let not shine on it. Let darkness and black gloom claim it. He perhaps even has in mind uh, the initial creation account where God said, uh, created all things. And what we had was this dark, watery, unformed, chaotic mass, which was the very 
first thing as God begins this work of creation. Let the day, let it be like that. Let it be covered in darkness and in dark gloom. Let there no be light in it. Uh, let the night itself um, be seized by darkness. But notice those last two lines in verse 6. Let it not rejoice among the days of the year. Let it not come into the number of the months. So all the figures of night, darkness, gloom are merely to say, Oh, that this day had been obliterated and was never found in man's calendar. So the first way he curses the day of his birth is that, that it could simply be erased, never to have occurred. Now, the second way he curses the day of his birth is that it might be bereft of all joy. In verse 7, Behold, let that night be barren. Let no joyful shout enter it. Let those who curse it, curse, let those who curse it, who curse the day, who are prepared to rouse the Leviathan. How many times have we with real joy with friends and perhaps ourselves heard that shout? And so often it seems it is in the night. It's a boy. It's a girl. You've got a baby. And that is a great, joyful sound, isn't it? Uh, there's few things that bring delight and joy to the heart, such as that joyful announcement. But, but Job is saying, let the night be bereft of that joy. Um, let it be barren, in other words. Let there be no shout of joy in it, no joyful shout entering into it, but rather let it be accursed. Uh, verse 8 is a bit difficult. Let those who curse it, cur- who curse the day, who prepare to rouse Leviathan. Now we'll meet Leviathan in chapter 41. This is the ferocious, untamable beast. No man can, um, can conquer it. It is physically invincible. And so those who would seek to arouse Leviathan would be those who are troublemakers, those who are, are, are cursing uh, awful men. Let their curses, let their troublemaking fill the night. But don't let the day of my birth be marked with, with any joy. And then, of course, let the day be uh, deprived of glory. Verse 9, let the stars of its twilight be darkened. Let it wait for light, but have none. Let it not see the breaking of the dawn. You know, the glory of the night is the stars. And they're indeed beautiful. And uh, the beautiful pink and orange across the horizon as the sun rises. And what beauty is there. But Job says, let this day not have any of that glory. No light of stars. No light and beauty of breaking dawn. In verse 10, he gives us the reason for this threefold curse of his birthday. Because it did not shut the opening of my mother's womb or hide trouble from my eyes. So what he's saying is he curses the day because this day is the day that he came into the world to be embroiled now in all of the difficulties and troubles that were in his life. Uh, It ushered him into his present occasion. If he'd never been born, Job reasons, he then would not be in this circumstance. So You see how he's lost focus. Now, he knows he cannot destroy that day. He can't turn back the clock. He can't get in a time machine 
and go backwards. But he's simply expressing abhorrence for the fact that he had ever been born. In doing so, he, he forgets so much of what he would have known even in the days of the patriarchs. He forgets that a man-child is born here. One who is born in the image of God. When it says in verse 3, a boy, a man-child is conceived. That a, an image-bearer of God has been born. Another one has been brought into the world uh, to be like God and, and to serve God. And that it's a glorious thing. Uh, the patriarchs recognized that life itself, conception, was a gift of God. And that God is the one who would give life. And that God is the one who would bring life. Um, but Job, because he had become focused on his troubles, lost sight that God is the giver of life. And he speaks in this uh, most reprehensible manner. I, later, Jeremiah will use the same language as he was too had lost focus and like Job was feeling sorry for himself. Cursed be the day, Jeremiah 20, 14 to 18, when I was born. Let the day be blessed when my mother bore me. Uh, let the, not the day be blessed when my mother bore me. Cursed be the man who brought the news to my father, saying, there's the joy. A baby boy has been born to you and made him very happy. Let that man be like the cities, which the Lord overthrew without relenting. Let him hear an outcry in the morning and a shout of alarm at noon. There's the cursing, because he did not kill me before birth, so that my mother would have been my grave. And her womb never pregnant. Why did I ever come forth from the womb to look on trouble and sorrow so that my days have been spent in shame? You see, Jeremiah, like Job, had, had lost focus. They took their eyes off of God, whom they both had praised and adored. And they became obsessed with themselves. And this is what happens you know people that have been obsessed with their illness and become obsessed with their body? Are they obsessed with financial problems? They become obsessed with finances or obsessed with a, a hurt, broken relationship and they become obsessed with those things. And these men have become obsessed, focusing on themselves, obsessed with their trials. But there was one who hurt far more than Job did. Remember, I've told you that Job, in many ways, was a type of our Savior. Here, in a sense, uh, not a, a positive type. But what the Holy Spirit would want you to see here is that as Job underwent these sufferings, our Savior's sufferings were much worse, weren't they? He suffered everything that Job suffered, right down to the awful physical pain of crucifixion. Uh, he was de deserted by friends, as we saw last week, and um, denied. But even above all that, he was deserted by his father. And so he also expresses a lament in Psalm 22. And there... Hear him, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. Oh, my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer by night. But I find no rest. He too cried to God. God also was silent when your Savior cried to God. 
But notice his faith. It's not, oh God, it's my God. And he goes on in verses 3 to 5. You're holy, O you who are enthroned upon the praises of Israel. They trusted in you. You did deliver them. To you they cried out and were delivered. In you they trusted and were not disappointed. You see, his focus is on God. His faith is exercised on God. In 6 to 8, he returns to his suffering. But then in 9 to 10, his conclusion is so different from Job's and Jeremiah's. Yet you are he who brought me forth from the womb. You made me trust upon my mother's breast. Upon you I was cast forth. You have been my God from my mother's womb. Here our Savior teaches us how to lament. He sets for us the pattern of the lamentation of a faithful man, even as we also sang in the paraphrase uh, in hymn 503. The Savior did not lose focus. He becomes to us the pattern of a proper response, but he also becomes to us the solace and comforter when our responses are improper. We can cast ourselves on him. So there's a loss of focus here. But secondly, there's a loss of perspective. This is in verses 11 through 19. Now, Job never returns to the absurdities of these first 10 verses. He knew he couldn't obliterate the day. It was, he was venting, uh, and it was irrational. Uh, but he, he never goes backwards there. He, he moves forward now. His, his faith, at least a little bit, takes a few steps forward. And so now he simply questions. He questions. It's not wrong to question. Our Savior questioned as he was on the cross. You may ask God those questions. Verse 11, why did I not die at birth, come forth from the womb and expire? Why did the knees receive me? And why the breast that I should suck? So Job wonders, why did God not take his life? Why did God allow him to live uh, when death would be highly preferable? Now, as he lays the foundation here for the preferability of death, notice again, he understands the care of God. Uh, the language is very similar to what uh, we read uh, in the Savior. Uh, the knees received me, the breast that I should suck. And, and here Job reminds us of the great care that God takes for his image bearer. Baby deer born in the fear, field in the few days they're up and on their own. And baby birds in a nest and for a bit its mother feeds it and then it kicks it out. We who are the best of all of God's creatures need the most care at birth, don't we? And here, here Job describes that for us, that uh, the midwife receives us on her knees. God's caring. And the mother, who's in God's great, wonderful providence, blood turns to milk, nourishes us. And in all these ways, boys and girls, and, and often you don't think about it, but uh, from this littlest one here, God has provided for you. He has uh, spared your life and, and sustained you. And uh, Job was forgetting that, you see. He was forgetting that because he lost perspective, and he simply wishes he had died at birth. Now, in his loss of perspective, Job expresses three things 
about death. Now, in themselves, uh, to a degree, each of the things is correct, at least partially. But in the first place, he says, death is preferable because it is rest. In verse 13, now I would have lain down, been quiet, I would have slept, I should have been at rest. I'm sure this idea of rest was very appealing to Job right now. Body racked with this excruciating pain from which there was no source of of remedy or or alleviation. And and death for him uh, would have been rest expressed here in three days. Lying down, being quiet, sleeping, uh, being at rest. But Job's problem was he does not look at death beyond the grave. This is where the perspective is lost. It's true that death is a rest for the believer. This is why the Spirit refers to it as sleep. Our Savior himself does that in John chapter 11, that uh, death is being asleep. Our bodies are, are resting in the grave. But that rest is tied to the fact that our immortal souls are already in the presence of the Lord, glorified and gazing upon him. And that the rest of the grave is but a temporary rest until Christ returns. Now, the body of the wicked is resting in the grave, but it it has no hope, you see. It's not a joyful rest. It's a rest that simply awaits the doom of resurrection and eternal judgment. It's not long, wrong to look at death as rest. If you were on the martyr stake or suffering diseases, painful diseases like this, to long for God to take you, that yes, you'd be delivered from the immediate pain and your souls would then be delighting in the presence of God. Or to long for death, as Paul expresses that in 2 Corinthians 5, because this present tabernacle is a great burden to us physically and spiritually, and it's far much better to be with the Lord. And Job will know later, believed in the immortality of the soul. But here he simply lost perspective. All he could think about was the cessation of pain, all these troubles, simply... If he had died at the womb, he would be at rest. Second, he says, uh, death is the, uh, the great equalizer. And so he, he speaks of others who have died in verses 14 and 15, with kings and counselors of the earth who rebuilt ruins for themselves, or with princes who had gold and were filling their houses with silver. Death's no respecter of persons. Job himself has confessed, naked I came, naked I'll go back. And so in death, you, you lie with the great ones. He, he thinks of them, of their might and their power, their, their wealth. They rebuilt ruins for themselves. They had great gold. Their houses were full of silver. But that, that's all gone at death. Death simply the great equalizer and, and all will be there together. And again, that's very true. You can't take it with you. Um, I'm sure you've seen all of these storage places around Greenville. They're going up like mushrooms. And so we've uh, we named them, and we're going to put a big sign on them. You can't take it with you. <laughs> you can't take it with you. Um, and death is the equalizer in that, in that regard. But, of course, 
Uh, it must be more than that, because we are sons and daughters of God, and we then should be exalted into a heavenly inheritance. But Job's lost perspective of that, hasn't he? And then the third perspective of death, it's rest, it's equalizer, it's a deliverance. And so, or like a miscarriage which is discarded, I would not be as infants that never saw light. I'd be dead there with death. The wicked cease from raging. The weary are at rest, verse 18. Prisoners are at ease together. They don't hear the voice of the taskmaster. The small and the greater there. The slave is free from his master. That's true as well, isn't it? The death shall be the, the deliverance from all of the bondages and the persecutions and the oppression that are part of this life. And all should be free from that. Well, the righteous will be free from that. But the wicked, death's but a temporary rest stop until they enter into an oppression far worse than anything ever known in this life. So what Job is doing is idealizing death, you see. He's lost perspective. He's, he's not looked beyond death to God. He's focusing on his own body and the misery of his circumstances. And he's just wishing the fact that he had died the day that he was born or even in his mother's womb. He lost perspective. And, and so we see how it can be when the believer is is obsessed with, with trial and pain that he can lose focus and perspective and, and respond inappropriately. So I want to draw out four lessons for you. Um, remember, all Scripture is profitable for us. And there's four important things. I'm sure there's a lot more, but let me give you four important lessons that are here. In the first place, in Job, God has given us a window into the soul of a grievously afflicted and pained individual. Yes, as Calvin says, he overshoots himself. He, he's over the top. He, he's lost focus, and he's not, he's not acting out of that same faith that would honor God. But in this grief, as it's expressed here, it helps you and me to get some insight into the immense sufferings of brothers and sisters. I trust that none of you will ever go through something like this, but obviously there's people in Ukraine today, believers who are undergoing awful, lamentable circumstances. And this helps us understand them. It helps us be what Job's friends weren't, and that is patient with them. It gives us this insight so that we can bear along with brothers and sisters, even when their complaints are much more petty and the problems much less difficult. Uh, some of us have not had much an extent of suffering, and, and this helps us to, to understand that. It's very good for young people and, and you men that will be pastors. I know as in my first pastorate, uh, almost all the congregation except for one lady and later on a second lady, were way older than I was. And many of them, most of them I buried. And they had great struggles. Husbands committing suicide and 
loss of farms and businesses and children who walked away from the Lord. And I was so inept in dealing with them. Inept in dealing with them. I think if I'd known some of these lessons from Job, I'd, I'd be better. And so you young men who at this point in your lives have been spared much of this, uh, let it sink in. Let it sink in. Uh, Job's agony that you can come alongside as a, as a sympathizer. A second lesson is we ourselves need to be aware of the loss of focus and perspective. And it's not that any of us would probably ever be so foolish as to want to see our birth date obliterated or wish that we died. Well, you might wish you died instead of be born. But every one of us is guilty of murmuring and complaining, aren't we? As our troubles mount up, as we feel the weight of trials and difficulties, have we not said, I don't deserve this? God is not fair? Or we've simply complained and murmured to one another, yes, even to God? Why are you treating me this way? And so we're warned here by the Holy Spirit to watch out for this danger to be aware that any murmuring and complaining is sinful. You know, it's very interesting, isn't it, in Paul's catalog of, of the sins of our fathers in the wilderness, how much he talks about murmuring and complaining. Because that is a great insult to the glorious God of providence and redemption. And so you, you need to guard your heart. And you'll guard your heart by keeping your focus on the beauty and glory and the love and the sovereignty of God, and you rest there. And you say with the hymn, whate'er my God ordains is right. You learn to confess that the Lord is just. Shall we receive good from him and not evil or harm? So Watch your own focus, guard your heart. But it leads to a third thing here, and, and that is don't rest on past victories, but depend upon grace. I mean, Job came through the trials like a mighty champion. He was the champion of God. He was this glorious warrior. He prevailed and persevered. He confessed. So you would think then that he's ready for anything, Right? And you have a great day of victory, and, and you, you praise God, and then tomorrow you fall into the, into the sin. You see, we don't trust past victories. You must not do so. No, you must live in dependence upon the grace of God. What, what was the big difference between Job's first two responses in here? God just slightly withdrew his grace. God gave Job all the sufficient grace not to succumb to the temptation. But now, God withdrew his grace a bit. He does that with us because he wants us to understand the wretchedness of our hearts and how apart from him, we are nothing. And so, live in dependence upon God's grace in every situation, every trial, every temptation. Cast yourself on God's grace. Make sure you use, faithfully use the means of grace. 
that God will sustain you. And then fourth, as I've already mentioned, note just once again, the glorious majesty, the victory of your Savior. He went through that which was far worse. He endured it all for us, his people. He conquered sin and Satan and death, that you and I might be delivered. He then is the great sustainer. As I said, he gives us an example, but he gives us much more. He is the fountain of this grace that we need. And he gives it to us. He also brings pardon when you and I overshoot ourselves and speak over the top. As we ask pardon, we know for Christ's sake that pardon is granted. And do you see here the beauty and glory of your Savior? And I, I hope that every one of you here this morning knows Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. For again, in Job's suffering, you get a hint of what the Savior did for sinners. The great love he has for sinners. Rest in him. Hope in him. Be confident in him. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Antioch Presbyterian Church. We are located in the historic Cashville community of Woodruff, South Carolina, near the intersection of South Carolina Highways 101 and 417. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com.